you brought your Bible with you, we're going to be back in Revelation this morning. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, the last half of chapter 7. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. And if you're joining us online, that scripture will be on the screen of whatever device you're watching. In Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. I don't know if you noticed, but while we were singing, uh, you know, we always have backdrops, background behind the lyrics on the screen. Uh, today, most of them were wonderful, you know, settings of the wild, uh, mountainous area, being out in the wilderness. Uh, how many of you like the idea of just being out by yourself, away from civilization? I know there's a few of you, okay, that like that idea. Um, does your mind change at all about that? Uh, if you were to think, like, I'm in that situation but I'm totally lost. I have no idea where I'm. Maybe there's some of you that want to get lost, right? Because you lose other people too in the process. But uh, would you be anxious about it at all if you were completely lost? You had no maps, you had no phone, uh, you had no guide, uh, you had no way of reaching out to others. It was somewhere you've never been, so you had no way of orienting yourself to where you've been. Uh, would you be as excited about being in such a remote location if you were truly lost? You know, I got to thinking about this recently because I was reading some story online about a, a couple that got lost and, you know, while they were hiking. That happens a lot more often than I realized. Uh, in our country and around the world, people will go hiking and get lost and uh, never show back up or be gone for days um, in some of the, you know, more remote places uh, of our nation out in the West and other places. Um, so I was reading that and I was just imagining myself in that situation. And I got to thinking to myself, you know, I've never really been truly lost. I know that's hard to believe uh, for a man that's driven before that I've never been truly lost, but I've never been like really, really lost. We've all been lost to some degree. Remember the last time I remember really being lost because it's just, to be honest, in our world today, as connected as we are, it's hard to get lost, right? Because uh, we have so many ways to tell us where we are. But the last time I remember being lost um, was uh, in Dallas, uh, when Cheryl and I had just gotten married, we were driving to a hotel for our honeymoon. It was like 2 o'clock in the morning. I was supposed to exit on Loop 12, um, but I found myself in downtown Dallas. I had no, I'd never, completely unfamiliar with this area uh, at the time, being from West Texas. Uh, again, I've told you about being from West Texas. You could see miles in every direction. Wasn't familiar with all the buildings. Didn't know where everything was, where it was supposed to be. Um, I knew we were staying somewhere close to Texas Stadium, uh, but that's all that I knew. I didn't know where that was. Uh, and so we had to stop and ask for help with directions. Uh, we didn't have phones yet. This was 2003. Uh, so we didn't have phones yet that were smart, uh, that could tell us where we were with the maps on them. Uh, but they did have MapQuest online. I don't know if anybody remembers doing this, but going online and then printing out directions before you left to go on your trip. Um, those didn't work. Uh, I missed an exit. And that's the bad thing about those, right? Once you miss an exit, you're lost. Uh, you know, you, you, have to, you have to find help somewhere else. And so we went into some convenience store somewhere in the middle of Dallas at like one o'clock in the morning uh, to find directions on how to get to the hotel. And they, they helped us figure it out. And so even though I was lost, we were only lost for, you know, 30 minutes or an hour. That's not really, really lost. You know, I can remember when I was a kid, you know, traveling with my parents that there would be times when we were going to football games to watch my sisters uh, who were twirlers uh, on our cheerleading team um, getting lost on the way there and listening to them 
constructively talk back and forth with one another about how to find the next place or where to stop and ask for directions. And, and, and again, I just got to thinking, I never really remember that sensation of being lost all that much because we have such connectivity today. Uh, even this past summer, when our family went to Colorado, uh, we decided we were going to go rent an ATV and go out into the uh, National Forest there close to Pagosa Springs, where we stayed, uh, which was a blast. But I had a diversion to being lost, and so I thought, okay, how am I going to know where we are? Because it's probably not going to be cell phone service. Did you know there are apps out there? There's an app for everything. Uh, there's an app out there that you can download, I think, from the National Park Service um, that will tell you even when you don't have cell phone data coverage, it'll use your GPS along with a built-in map that the app downloads while you do have coverage to tell you exactly where you are. Uh, and so I was able to, with trail maps and everything, track where we were so we would know when to, when to start heading back to the place we rented from so we weren't there late. Uh, and, and so the idea of being lost is almost becoming like a foreign concept for the Western mind, uh, for millennials and younger, uh, the idea of being truly physically lost. Now, I think we get it in other senses, mentally lost, spiritually lost. I think there's a lot of that going on in the world around us. But feeling actually physically lost, I mean really, really lost, is something maybe my generation and younger doesn't really understand. Maybe you've been there, though. Uh, and you know the anxiety that comes with that. Uh, you know the, the fear that comes with that. And again, going back to those folks that I was reading about that got lost somewhere hiking and weren't able to find their way out. You know, they just completely disappeared. I'm uh, imagining going days without being found and having no idea where you are. Try to put yourself in that situation. Again, where even landmarks don't make sense. You know, I remember back at home, I would get lost occasionally, but I kind of knew where generally where things were and which direction to go to find out where I knew where I was. It's because landmarks made sense. What about where you're somewhere completely new, you have no access to a map, you have no access to help. What do you do when you are completely 100% lost? And that made me stop as I was thinking about that and gave me a sense of gratefulness that in a spiritual sense, in our spiritual reality, all of us are in that boat at some point in our lives. All of us start out in that boat, lost. Not only that, but many of us, most of us, almost all of us really, start out in the world lost without even knowing how lost we are. That's a very frightening idea, isn't it? To think that you know where you are, but to really be lost. You just get yourself more lost in the process. But we, you and I, have a guide. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. It's something we're going to see in the passage we're going to read that will keep us from ever being lost to make sure that we get exactly what we're trying to get because Jesus will never allow us to get that lost. Before we read Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. God, we thank you for being here with us to guide us to truth. Lord, we know that without you we are totally lost, but that you've given us your spirit, yourself, in your Holy Spirit, here with us, present with us. God, that you've given us your truth in your word to direct us, to show us the ways of righteousness. And so, God, we pause and we give you all praise and glory for being the one who leads us to truth. God, may you continue to do so even this morning 
God, may you direct us through, the, through uh, the beautiful truth of your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit. God, may you show us truth in such a way that that truth will transform our lives from the inside out. And may you get all the glory. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, real quickly, I want to remind you, uh, at points during the sermon, there's going to be a phone number at the bottom uh, of the screen. Um, we've encouraged that before. I want to bring it back up. Um, that is just if you ever have anything that comes to mind, uh, a theological question or just anything you want to ask about or an idea that you had, just text that into that number. Uh, that's not my personal number. It's actually a collection service that we use uh, that will take your message, collect it, send us an email, tell us about it. Uh, and it'll give us an opportunity, give me an opportunity uh, to reflect over that. That and answer that question as well as I possibly can. So I'm saying that in conjunction with this, another quick announcement, uh, and that is that um, something I've been wanting to do for a while uh, is to have like a, a midweek podcast or vodcast kind of thing uh, here at FBC Grandview. Uh, and so we're going to do, uh, during the week, uh, have a, put a video out on Facebook, give you an opportunity to meet other people in the church, uh, to hear from them, hear about them. I'm just going to ask a few questions of different people. I might even ask you if you want to be on it someday. So be thinking about that. Uh, and then also maybe address some of those questions too, because I have one that got asked a long time ago that I haven't addressed, um, but we haven't had a lot come in. So I want to start with that one this next week, uh, and then hopefully some and the rest of you will engage as well. But anyway, like I said, as the, the major points come on the screen, that, that, that phone number will be at the bottom. All right, Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Two questions I want to ask about this text, and they're, they're basically asked, at least the first one directly, and kind of the second one as well, by the elder mentioned right in the middle of the passage that we just read. And that is, who are these people, is the first one. And the second one is, how did they get there? So the first question, who are these people? This great multitude that John sees in a vision. If you can remember, just to set up the context, I know it's been a couple of weeks because we took a break from Revelation last week. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 7, we see another large group. This one's actually numbered at 144,000, 12,000 from each of uh, 12 different tribes mentioned about Israel. Uh, and my contention to you last week, or a couple of weeks ago, was that that group is, is the church fulfilled. It's, it's looking at the church through the Old Testament lens uh, and seeing that the promise 
promises made to Israel were kept by God uh, and that he has protected this group and will protect them from his wrath uh, during the time when his wrath is poured out uh, and that he has rescued them uh, from the world and everything in it. And especially again from his wrath that is coming to judge the world. So then immediately after that, we have this view of this, this great multitude, too many people to count from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue. Uh, and, and so we get a very broad picture that John is seeing. Now, first of all, can we just stop for a moment before, again, we get lost in the weeds. It's something I've said over and over again. I don't want us to do. I don't want, to want us to get lost in the stuff that can be debated in Revelation and not see uh, the beauty of what's going on uh, on the surface of what is actually being described by John. Let's just stop for a moment and take in the beauty of what John is actually seeing. He's seeing a large group of people at the throne of God, singing praises to God, who are from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue, uh, from every ethnicity. So we're talking about a group of people. One thing I love about this depiction is that when we get to heaven, it's not as if everybody is suddenly going to be the same. Uh, that even in heaven, there are differences in people as they come, uh, and, and their differences are notable by John, who is looking into this heavenly worship scene. And so the differences that we have, even though they divide us and turn us against one another and are cause for great evil in the world, in our history, are something in this situation to be celebrated. We should rejoice in the diversity that is at the throne of God singing praises to him in different languages. Now, I think we're all going to understand each other. The Babel will no longer be a dividing point for us. I don't think that's what's going on at all. But I think John is noticing the beauty of how the gospel, the gospel that started with Jesus in Jerusalem, has gone literally as Jesus told us to take it to the uttermost parts of the earth. Uh, and that every tribe has heard about it. Every nation has heard about it. It's been preached in every language. Uh, and so we have all of these people together praising God for eternity. Oh, I long for that day. Do you not? Uh, when the people who I see on television and who I see in other places being divided, that I'm going to see representatives from those people standing at the throne of God, worshiping him forever and ever and ever. That you and I, We'll be standing, us Texans, uh, we'll be standing with Russians. We'll be standing with Syrians. Uh, we'll be standing with Australians. We'll be standing with Brazilians. Uh, we'll be standing with Lithuania. Whatever, it'd take me a long time to go through all the countries, uh, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, that, uh, that as I sing my praises to God in English, that others will be singing in Farsi and Mandarin and Spanish, and, and, and all of this will, will come together in, in, in the beautiful uh, cacophony of, of praise that's raised up to God, this, this beautiful diversity. Um, I don't know about you, but when I have the opportunity to be in a different cultural setting, um, when I have the opportunity to watch a different cultural group of people worship God, uh, there is something beautiful about that. Now, that might not be the way I choose to worship day in and day out, week in and week out, but I can be in those services and, and, and see the beauty in it. Um, Armstrong, one of the missionaries that we support in Kenya, uh, he will send us videos every now and then. And man, when they worship, they worship, right? They, they dance, they, they get really loud. 
loud. Uh, and, and there's something in my, like, my, you know, Western sensibilities, I guess. It's like, oh, that's a little too out of control. But at the same time, like, I love that. I love their energy. I love the, the, the way that they incorporate everything that they are into worshiping God. There is beauty in the other. There's beauty in our differences. And we see that most completely right here at the throne of God when the, all the world comes together across all divisions to worship him forever and ever. That could be a sermon in itself. But I just want us to notice that before we move on again to the question of who are these people anyway? So there's a lot of different ideas for who these people are. Um, the most common idea among scholars today is that Revelation 7 divided in half, and it's two different ways of looking at the same group of people, uh, meaning that it's the church as a whole. Uh, in the first half, we see the 144,000. We see the Jewishness of the church. We see the fulfillment of Old Testament. Uh, and then in the second half, we see kind of the Gentileness of the church. We see every tribe, tongue, nation represented together at the throne of God. It's an innumerable mass. So we would consider even Israel itself would be amongst that uh, innumerable amount. Um, kind of the, the uh, one of the views that probably you're the most familiar with that you've heard is that this is a particular group of people uh, who have been taken uh, out, uh, who have been raptured out of the uh, out of out of the out of the earth uh, during the great tribulation, or saved from this period known as the great tribulation. And that's one of the things that is mentioned in this passage, uh, the great tribulation. That's how the the elder answers his own question, right? One of the 24 elders around the throne is one of the ones that comes to John. We don't know which one because uh, they're not really named. Uh, and he asked that question, who are these people? And John says, well, you know. Uh, and so it's, it's almost rhetorical. The elder is asking this question because it's important. Uh, and he wants an opportunity to answer. This is God speaking to John in that sense. And he tells them they're from all over the place and they were rescued out of the, the great tribulation. Uh, the first time we kind of get the idea of the great tribulation is at the end of the book of Daniel. Uh, and, and we see this, this is something that's promised to come, a great tribulation like none that has ever happened before it, right? That they will come before the, uh, uh, the, 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 the end, uh, near the end, obviously, uh, and it will be this, this time of calamity unlike anything else before it in which it's God's wrath begins to be poured out on humanity. Again, that's probably uh, the view that you're most familiar with, uh, the view that's, that's this most publicized and kind of our, 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 our popular culture, Christianity, right? Um, and I'm here to tell you that, like, I have an, I have a, an opinion, um, but I don't know exactly who these people are when it comes down to that question. Um, I like the idea of it being seen as the whole church, uh, because if we take another Old Testament reference uh, and we see an innumerable amount of people, um, kind of the first place we get to see that is in Genesis 12, uh, when Abraham is promised that his, his descendants would be innumerable, would be as, as innumerable as the sand on the shores, the stars on the sky. Uh, and, and this could be seen then as a fulfillment of that original promise that God gave to Abraham about selecting a group of people out of the earth and that Abraham's, God's message to Abraham to go and, and to allow God to build his name great, that God would do that and make his descendants innumerable. Um, so, so maybe it is the whole church. Maybe it's a particular group of people uh, that were saved during the tribulation, meaning like, or, or maybe it's, it's some that uh, another more popular view is that maybe the Christians themselves were raptured. There's people left on the earth during the tribulation. They come to faith, uh, and then those people are the ones that are now in this great multitude. Some people have taken chapter 7 to say, well, the 144,000 might be the ones that are raptured out, right, of the, uh, of the world before the tribulation happens. And then during the tribulation, those who do come to faith, that is the innumerable I'm out. 
It's beautiful any way you slice it, right? Uh, it, it's amazing any way you slice it, uh, that this is an innumerable amount of people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what I want to really focus on, though, is how did they get there? Okay, we could talk about who they are all day long, and we're, nobody's going to convince anybody that they're wrong because we all have our opinions, and we're going to stick with our opinions. And one of the reasons why we're not going to convince anybody is because I don't think that's the main point. I think the main point is how did they get there. Let me go back uh, and read uh, uh, what the elder says to him again uh, in verse 14. He said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Stop. Next sentence. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And even listen to the song that they sing. It is salvation. Uh, 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 verse 10, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And it is God in verse 17, the Lamb who is their guide. All right, there's so many different things in this passage, in this chapter, that point to it all being dependent upon Jesus, and that our salvation being totally dependent upon Him. Now, if you just take this illustration at face value, it doesn't make any sense. How would one wash their robes white in blood? Uh, you want to talk about something that's going to that's gonna stain a robe, uh, that's going to soil a garment, it is blood. If you've ever, you know, you cut yourself while you're working or something, blood is something that's very difficult to get out of a garment, right? It's very difficult to clean. Uh, if, you've, you know, if you go hunting or something, and while you're cleaning a deer, you get it on your overalls, you're probably not going to get it out anytime soon unless you have some sort of method I'd love to know about, right? N not that I'm looking to clean up a large amounts of blood or anything like that, uh, but if you have a method like that, I'd love to know about it. Uh, I say that just to say that blood is, is a staining thing, not a cleaning thing. Uh, it soils garments. It doesn't clean them. But there's something different about the blood of this particular lamb. Uh, this particular lamb, instead of blood staining, it actually cleans because all of the blood that we've spilled up until this point is staining. All of the blood that was spilled on the altar of God and, 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 and sacrificed to him, uh, even that was still staining. Even that left marks on the altar. Even that left a stench behind. But there is something about the blood of the one lamb, of the one sacrifice to end all sacrifices, that instead of staining those who believe in him, those who have faith in him, that his blood actually cleanses us. This freaks the world out when we start talking about blood. What in the world are you talking about? How could your God be that vindictive? How could your God be that violent? Ah, oh, we perpetrate violence against each other all the time. We perpetrate violence against God continually by sinning against him. And yet we want to know why in the world God would require such violence. We know from scripture that it is impossible to have sins forgiven without the shedding of blood because we have decided to shed that blood. We have decided to be violent against God. We have decided that a sacrifice is necessary in our own sinful decisions. And so blood has to be spilt. Thank God that it isn't all of ours. And I mean that literally, thank God that he himself decided to spill his own blood, the blood of his only begotten son, because it was the only blood that was truly clean. He's the only one who existed without sin. And so that blood cleanses us. And we see this innumerable multitude of people wearing white robes, symbolizing their purity, symbolizing that they have walked into heaven clean, not by something that they have done, but by the blood 
of the lamb. Not only are their robes right, they're also holding palm branches, we learn, and that's a sign of victory. Uh, that's why people during uh, uh, Palm Sunday, that's why they laid them down at Jesus' feet. He was seen as a victor riding in on the back of a donkey. Now, they changed their minds a week later, much of them, uh, but that symbol doesn't lose its, its symbolic nature of, of representing uh, uh, victory. It's why, why, why wreaths and leaves were placed around uh, Olympians' heads when they would win something back in the ancient Olympics, right? It's a sign of victory, a sign of, of, of being a champion. And so uh, we see the victory that they themselves are professing, the victory that they themselves are winning as they step into the gates of heaven. And again, we realize that that is not from them. How did they get there? Through the blood of the Lamb. Simple. You see, when I was told these stories growing up, uh, that there would be a, a rapture of the church, that there would be this, this heroic group of people left behind who would then come to faith. When I was told those stories, I viewed those people as heroic. I viewed those people as having magnificent faith. And, and look, we should look at other people of faith and say, man, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the faithfulness. I'm grateful for the righteousness of those people. But in the end, it's not about their heroism. In the end, it's not about their amazing stories. It's about the one who bled and died so that that sinful soul can get into heaven. And the same is true for each of us. I love to hear stories of people coming to faith. I love to hear people share their testimony, not because it is about what they've done, but because about what God has done in them. If we sit in a pew and we listen to someone on a stage share their testimony and we walk away thinking to ourselves, wow, what a great man. Wow, what a great woman. Either that person has completely misled us or we've completely completely missed the point, because that ought not to be our response to any testimony. Instead, all responses to all testimonies ought to be, wow, what a great God. Amen? This is who we're talking about when we talk about salvation. Salvation belongs to our God, is what this multitude sings in this song in heaven. So a few things I want to go over real quickly. By the way, I was talking about being lost. Somewhere along the way, I set my sermon notes down and lost them this morning. So Brad texted me a copy, and I'm looking at it on my phone. So if you're wondering why I have my phone out, that's why uh, this morning. I'm a little bit lost, so if, there's, if, the, if the transitions are a little bit longer, you know why. A um, few things I want to talk about, I want to walk away with this morning. First of all, tribulation does not derail the plan of God. Okay, these people went through a great tribulation. Whether it is a specific period of time, at the end of time, a great calamity, or as most of the scholars that I read think it is, is just descriptive of the tribulation through which many of us go through, descriptive of the tribulation that the church endures uh, after uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, from the New Testament perspective, when we read end times, yeah, we could talk about the specific end, but we can also look at anything after the time of Jesus, the age of the church, wh whatever that is. Uh, if it's a great, like, single moment tribulation, or whether it's the tribulation through which all people endure, the tribulation that the martyrs uh, of the ancient church endured, none of that derails the plan of God. Like calamity does not derail the plan of God. And I would go so far as to say, and, and bear with me here before you think this is blasphemous or wrong, that it's actually within the plan of God to allow those things to happen. 
that a great tribulation at the end, by the way, I think there will be a great period of tribulation and judgment and wrath at the end of time. That is part of the plan of God. Now, we might not like to admit that, and oh, wow, we gotta allow that to happen. God is going to pour out his wrath upon all that is sinful. And if we are hidden under the blood of Jesus Christ, you and I will be protected. We might have to endure hardship on this planet, but just like we talked about when we talked about the 144,000 a couple of weeks ago, we will be protected under the blood of Jesus Christ. But those who have chosen to live outside his protection, when God carries out his judgment on sin, if all that we have given ourselves to is sin and not to Jesus, then that judgment will be something that we will endure. It is a part of God's plan to vanquish sin once and for all, so that when we all get to heaven, sin will not exist any longer in any way. That's talked about in this very passage. There's not going to be any pain. There's not going to be any— Man, by the way, there's one, there's one illustration in this that I really loved, and I'm sure you can get your heads around at the end of a long Texas summer. There will be no scorching heat. Can I get an amen on that one? The sun will not bear down on them. There's not going to be any more crying either, like pain, evil, illness, sin, all of those things will be removed. We'll talk much more about that at the end of Revelation uh, as we celebrate the new heaven and the new earth. But we want to pause and notice that reality right here in Revelation 7 as well. Like that's coming, and for that to come, sin can't exist anymore. God has to vanquish it. And so all those who are under slavery and under ownership of sin, when God carries out his wrath against sin, they're going to handle that wrath. They're going to receive that wrath. And that is a part of God's judgment, because once and for all, he, our God, who is a consuming fire, will consume sin and all that belongs to it, so that it will be gone and cast in the lake of fire from which it shall never return. And for that, children of God, are we not grateful? Of course we are. That's part of God's plan. It does not derail God's plan. God's plan is for what God's desire is for all who call on him and have faith in him for the whole world to do that and to therefore be saved. And that's the message that we preach. But tribulation itself does not derail the plan of God, nor is tribulation eternal. We talked about this last week, so I don't want to deal with it in, in, in too much detail, but there is an expiration date to sadness. There is an expiration date to death. There is an expiration date to illness. Uh, there is an expiration date to terror. There's an expiration date to all the evils that ail us in this world. Tribulation, while it is a part of God's plan, is not part of God's eternal plan. It will one day come to an end. But to the, more to the point, there is only one path to the throne of God, and that is through the blood of the Lamb. Now, that matters for you for, in two ways. One, if you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, there's only one way for you to get there, and that is through the blood of the Lamb. That is through belief and profession of that belief in the salvation of Jesus Christ. That if you confess Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Paul tells us in Romans 10. That is what? Romans uh, 9. That, no, no, Romans 10. I'm doubting myself. Romans 10. That is what will save us. God's gift through Jesus, not our own work. So no matter how much you sinned, you're still capable of being saved because Jesus' sacrifice remains. No matter what you've done, you can't out the grace of God. You can't earn it either. No matter how good of a person you are, it's not going to get, and, and this is something that's very common in kind of the good old boy 
you know, small town Texas mentality of, well, you know, God, that person, that, that's up between them and God. Like you, the man upstairs, we're going to do business with each other. No, that's not the way it works. You don't do business with the man upstairs. Like he has a monopoly on everything, okay? You, you don't come to him and say, okay, you know, here's the good things I did in life. Uh, that's a, that's a, from a different religion. That's not Christianity at all. The scales outweigh one another. You're borrowing from some, some other places. Uh, it, it's not that. You're not going to do enough good because nothing you do will ever be as good as Jesus sacrificing himself on the cross. Nothing. And that's what it takes to earn the salvation of God. You can't do that on your own. You're lost without him. Lost without him. What do we do when we're lost? You don't have a map to turn to in this case. You don't have a phone to pull out and tell you where you're going. Instead, you need to rely on a God, which is what John says at the end of our passage together that we read, that Jesus himself is our God. Let's read it again, verse 17. For the lamb in their midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. If you want the living water, if you want salvation, you need to allow the shepherd, Jesus himself, to guide you. So, there is only one path to God. If you haven't yet made that path, it's through the blood of Jesus and through belief in him and profession of that belief. I would love to tell you what that looks like. If you're here this morning and you never made that profession, you can make it today. You can make that choice today. Even if you're watching us online, you can message us and let us know that you want to talk. Or if you have another Christian in your life, take the question to them uh, and, and invite Jesus into your heart. He's waiting to come in. He's waiting to save you. You can do that right now today, but it only happens through belief in him. Second way I want to look at that thought. There is only one path to the throne of God, and that is for all of us who exist on the other side of conversion, who have accepted Jesus as Savior. I think sometimes we run the danger of looking back on our Christian life and starting to view it as our thing, as our work. It's good stuff that we did. And I think even though we bought the gospel of grace, that we can't earn it with the thing I just explained, something happens within our minds sometimes where we begin to think we earn it. You know what happens when you feel like you earn something? You get, you get bitter about it, right? You get, you get self-righteous about it when you think you've earned something. Those of you who have children, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, when you give them something freely and they think they've earned it and then they talk to you like it's theirs. Oh, you don't want to do that, right? Like it's no, it, we gave that to you. Like we could take it back at any moment. Now God's not going to take the gift back, but he gave the gift of salvation to us. It's not something that we earn. Let us not live in self-righteousness to think that we've earned that. Let us remind ourselves, and Paul says in Ephesians 2, that even our works were prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. God himself, even the good things that we do, God has already done and is giving us the opportunity to walk in those works. He's already thought of those things, and he's inviting you to be a part of the work that he is doing. There is only one path to the throne of God, and finally, Jesus is our guide. Just like, as long as my phone is charged and I have cell phone coverage, I can't get lost. If Jesus is with you, spiritually speaking, you can never be lost, ever. No matter what tribulation you're enduring, no matter what you're going through, no matter how much doubt the world around you has, you cannot be lost with Jesus as your God. You cannot go wrong if you are following Jesus. And I don't just mean that in light of salvation. I mean that in everything that we do. 
Are we allowing Jesus to be our God? Are we really turning to his word and scripture? Are we really turning uh, to him in prayer through the power of his spirit? Are we allowing Jesus to be our God in our careers, in our family life, in, 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 in our dating lives, in, our, in the way that we operate with friends, in our money decisions, in, in, in our schooling? Are we turning to God to guide us through those situations? Because you and I both know that Christians can sometimes feel lost by the things that life throws at us. Even in those situations, Jesus is your guide. And you'd have better believe that if Jesus is your guide, he will lead you to salvation, both ultimate salvation salvation and to whatever life is throwing at you, salvation from that particular thing, Jesus will lead you to that as only he can if we are following him as our ultimate God. And so as we read this passage about this great multitude, we can rejoice over the goodness and greatness of our God in which all nations will one day worship him together in the throne room in which all people, delivered from tribulation, delivered from evil, will be at the throne of God, praising him forever and ever. All those who have called upon him for salvation. That tribulation in our world, even the great tribulation at the end, will not derail God's plan because it's not eternal. It has an expiration date. God will use it according to his good and perfect plan, but then it too will one day pass away. And the only way to an eternity free from sin, the only way to an eternity of being in his presence, to never experience that feeling of being lost again, is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, if you're here this morning or you're listening to these words and you have not accepted Jesus as Savior today, is a perfect opportunity. Reach out to myself or someone else and under, try to understand what that means. Have someone tell you about what it means to follow Jesus. There's so many resources available to you today to do that. Again, I would love to tell you. And for those of you who do believe in and follow Jesus, are you allowing him to be your God in every phase of life? Are you turning to him in every tribulation, or are you trying to do it through your own effort? Our own effort will get us nowhere, but the blood of Jesus will get us exactly where we need to be. During our time of invitation this morning, ponder those questions. If you need to pray about this or anything else, I would love to do that with you this morning. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. I'll be down here to pray with you if you'd like to. The altar will be open where you can come and pray and kneel at the steps if you would like. You can always pray with someone where you're at or, or quietly to yourself, however you would like. Um, but after I pray and we sing together, would you just move in whatever way God is calling? Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for your presence here with us this morning. God, we thank you for being our God for delivering us from the evils of the world, God, for preventing us from being spiritually and eternally lost. God, we look to you for salvation. And God, if there's anyone who's hearing these words that has never experienced your salvation, God, would your Holy Spirit, God, would you reach out and convince them to make that decision to come home? God, and for those of us who do know you as Savior, God, would you show areas in our lives in which we are not relying on you to be our God, but rather our own deceitful heart. God, may we follow you and know that if we do so, we will never be lost. And God, for that, you get all the glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.